Let me pray, and then we are going to look at uh, Discipline 1, 2, and 3. Lord, thank you so much for today. Lord, again, thank you for allowing us to come to you. Father, we come to you in just utter dependence on you. Father, thank you for your word that we may know you. Father, I pray, Lord, that the words that come from my mouth would would be a blessing to these men. And, Father, that I would speak rightly and correctly of you and who you are and how you work in your saved people. And I pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Last week, Scott uh, gave out a, uh, a great little diagram. And before I, I really jump into what I would like to teach on, if you could pull out your diagram. There's, I would want you guys to know our hope, the, the hope of the elders, is not that, that you would just come to build and soak up this teaching, but our hope is that you would go home and you would apply it, and not just apply it, but you would in turn be discipling others. Uh, whether you live by yourself, I'm talking about your relationship with friends. If you live with roommates, I'm talking about your relationship with your roommates. If you're married, your relationship with your spouse. If you're married with kids, your relationship with, with your spouse and your children. I pray that as you sit and would look at something like this material that you would go home and instill these disciplines, this teaching, to the ones that you have influence with. You know, last week, uh, just even the cover of the, of the handout, Scott had a, has a prayer written out, and it's not that the encouragement was to go read this, but the encouragement is, as you sit with whoever, or you sit with your spouse, or you sit with your children, it's good to remind them why we read the Bible. And and I would say, if you instill this habit now at their young age, when they hit my age, it will be more of a nature of why do I come to the Word? I still have to tell myself why I come to the Word. I bet you have to tell yourself why you come to the Word. And it's good chance of it's because you weren't taught why you come to the Word. So my encouragement is, as you are discipling, you are shepherding the little hearts in your home or your friends around you, it's a good reminder to talk about what, why do we read. Uh, you know, just going to briefly look at this. You know, we read because uh, it's where God reveals himself. It's where I learn the nature of my, my sinfulness, my fallenness. It's an undergirding in my life. It it teaches me what righteousness and what holiness is. I pray that you would take something like this, and as you teach your kids, you disciple your children, that you would use it. Uh, Take out the diagram. Today, as I teach, I want to really kind of put some practical thought to what this diagram looks like. It's the listening to yourself versus, versus, versus the shepherding of your heart throughout the day. I want our time together to be helpful that practically you would recognize when you are on this path of disappointment or on this path of discouragement. What happens to us when we find ourselves there and how we typically will look for comfort. So it is amazing that God, in just a few short verses in the book of Galatians, would teach us so much about this. But my thought is that you would be able to have some grab bars based on uh, just a few passages, what your life should look like in shepherding it and what you need to be aware of when you're on this path of, of sinful disappointment, discouragement, and, and how we manifest sin in the midst of it. So, although this study I have put in the D1 category, uh, we're definitely going to add components of D2 and D3, be- because what I desire is that you just wouldn't sit here and soak this, 
but you would go apply it. You would teach us as you interact with other people in your lives. What we're going to look at today are going to be verses that I know are very familiar to you. And we're going to look at Paul's letter to the Galatian church. Primarily what we're going to spend most of our time on is looking at the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Although we're going to look a little bit more expanded, we're going to look at the deeds of the flesh in uh, verses 16 through 19. And what my hope is that as we work through these few verses, you would recognize, not just right now, but throughout this week and throughout your life, where you're at. Now, I'll give you an example. I was driving back from California on Monday, and Scott calls me up, and he says, Tom, where are you? Uh, I don't know. I've been driving for hours. I don't know where I am. So I start looking around, and I see nuclear power plant. I am getting close to Buckeye. But here I am for hours just going down this path. I don't have a clue really where I'm at. I was on 202 the other day. My wife calls me. She was, where are you at, honey? Uh, I know I'm on the 202. Uh, I don't know. I'm coming up to Alma School. I would like us to be able to look at where our heart is inclined. I hope what I work through today practically will help you recognize practically where are you at and what path are you on. We're either on a, on a path that is going to lead us to where we don't want to go or we're going to be on a path that we continue to need to know exactly where we're at to know where we're going. So my hope is this will be just very something very practical for you. Before we get to chapter 5, though, I think it's important for us to uh, just go really fast forward to what Paul is teaching through the whole book of Galatians. Because it starts in chapter 1 with this typical greeting, but within six verses, Paul jumps right in to a problem that's in the church. And here's where it starts in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Paul says in verse 6, I am astonished that you so quickly deserting the one who called you by grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. The the different gospel that Paul is addressing here is its works. It's it's addressing that it was works. In, In our society, in our culture, there are two very popular religions in our culture that It's either saved by works or it's Jesus Christ plus works. And I I think that uh, there could even be people, maybe even in this room, that uh, look at their salvation based on what they're doing or what they're not doing. You know, in our small group, uh, Jeff had us give testimony to what God's doing in our life. And and I, I know this is something we all struggle with, is looking at an action of what we're doing and maybe not our own hearts. And that's, uh, hopefully this will be something practical that you can help evaluate your heart. But Paul is identifying two problems in the church and he lays out a defense for these two doctrines. First, Paul gives a clear presentation that a person is saved by grace through faith, not by works. And that is what, moving through chapter 1, And I'm doing this quickly because I really want to get to chapter 5. But in Galatians 3, if you flip over, verse 1, Paul addresses the Galatians. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law? He's asking, did you observe the Spirit by your works? Or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After being with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human efforts? More works. Verse 4. Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing, does God give you His Spirit 
and work miracles among you because you observe the law, your works, or because you believe what you heard. Verse 6, consider Abraham. He believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed by you. So those who have faith are blessed among, along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law, works again, are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law or by their works. The righteous will live by faith. Verse 12, the law is not based, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Paul wants the Galatian church to know that they are saved by grace through faith and not anything that they've ever done. I I think we probably have enough capitalistic mindset in all of us that we can sometimes think that we're doing something pretty good because of what we have done. The the second Christian doctrine, and this is where we're going in chapter 5, is the doctrine of sanctification. And if you don't need to turn there, I'll show it to you, but in the uh, fold-out that you were once given, I would want you to understand what we're talking about today is right here on the event. It's when you were justified. That happens one time. We're going to be talking about the sanctification process. That's right here in the middle, too. And, and that is the Philippians 1.6, that God who's faithful will complete the work that he's begun in you. And then the last panel, again, is the glorification. This happens after we die and we get to go be with Jesus. It's a one-time event. So what we're talking about is this ongoing life that we live right here in the middle of this fold-out. So, I'll tell you what, let's go spend a bunch of time in chapter 5. First, we're going to look at the deeds of the flesh. And then at the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. So let's go to uh, verse 16 of chapter 5. And I, I want to start in 16 because what I want to do is I want to compare and contrast. Uh, verse 16 says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other. So that you do not do what you want, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Remember, laws works. Verse 19, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that pretty well sounds like a non-believer, doesn't it? Let, Let me consider something that we talk about frequently throughout the year, and it's Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart being deceitfully wicked. Uh, I'm going to make a a leap here. I'm going to make a real huge assumption uh, that even in a group like this, uh, there are people that, there there could be somebody in here that is still struggling in the area of sexual immorality, idolatry, dissensions. And and you might even think that it's 
just okay. You, you might even be justifying yourself why I live this way. I, I will tell you, I've been in counseling setting, settings where I have been with people that are up to their eyeballs in serious sin, and they justify it. God wants me to be happy. I wouldn't do this if she did that. I wouldn't need to resort to this if she did that. Uh, I wish somebody I, I know in the business world, he's not here in this state and you would never ever hear of it, he just got found guilty of embezzling from his company. And it was, I, I was just absolutely shocked. And he's just trying to justify how his employer was he thought cheating him, so he thought he was justified. Guys, our hearts are deceitfully wicked. My hope is that you will take this message in the practical parts of it to evaluate your life because you are prone to think you deserve some of the sinful behaviors that you can engage in. Uh, I think this is a really help, going to be a helpful way for you to grab hold of, of the deeds of the flesh. These deeds of the flesh that we look through in verse 19 and 20 can be summed up in three, yeah, three. Didn't have the right glasses on. I want to make sure I had three. Uh, three categories. And here's what they are. They're the, they're the deeds of sexual nature. It's sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. That could be promiscuity. It, it could even be where you go for entertainment. Uh, deeds of false religion would be the next portion in its idolatry. Uh, you know, we read the Old Testament and we think, those stupid Israelites melting down gold and making a calf and worship it. Yeah, but what are the stupid things that we idolize? The, the love for money uh, could be, if you're single here, to have a spouse, uh, to really, really want something more than God. We are little idol factories, is what John Calvin said. Uh, witchcraft, you know, and you might say, I'd never do witchcraft. That's the stupidest thing I've heard. Well, I'm sure you probably make plenty of idols. We all do. We're idol factories. And the third category is the deeds in our human relationships, the vertical with, uh, or I should say the horizontal. It's the hatred, the discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. Uh, envy. Uh, it goes on drunkenness. I would put drunkenness up in the category of false religion. It, it is thinking that you deserve to feel good. Uh, orgies, I would put that into the sexual nature, but you need to grab hold of the fact that the deeds of the flesh break down into three, three elements. Sexual, religion, and our human relation with each other and uh, I can tell you and, I, and I'm really being honest every sin I commit will be in the area of either sexual immorality false religion or idolatry or deeds in the human relationship I have evaluated my life to see if that's true. And I would say the same is true for all of us. I think God, in his wisdom if, of how he had Paul write this, put every possible way you and I sin in two verses. I cannot think of a way outside of this uh, that we sin. I, I mean, I praise God because I'm not that smart. I praise God that he put it really in a concise place, but I challenge you to, to look. Where are you prone to sin? I'm going to say it's sexual immorality, it's idolatry, or it's in your human relationship with each other. Again, let, let's look at Galatians. What Paul is saying is prior to conversion, what was in our heart was sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, Jealousy fits or age, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And then he goes on in verse 21 and he gives a strong warning. He says, I warn you as I did before that those that live like 
this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Guys, as Christians, we need to be doing some honest evaluations. Is there something, you know, is it is it the newest iPhone? Is it the newest whatever out there? Are there little idols that you make? Your relationship with one another, you know, it's, it's the fruit of pride. You know, we need to have honest evaluation. This warning that Paul is giving is an urgency to flee this behavior and to grow in what he's going to talk about next. But let me ask, you know, do you think that you are living by the Spirit? You know, we're going to now dissect the fruit of the Spirit, and I want you to evaluate again. Is this the type of man that I am? Uh, Because the Spirit of God is in conflict with our flesh. If we have the deeds of the flesh going on, and if the Holy Spirit is alive in us, there needs to be a battle waging. And I'll tell you what, men, if there is not a battle waging in the midst of sinful nature, check up on yourself to be sure you're in the faith. There has to be the conflict. We're not talking about you need to be glorified in perfection here on earth because that's never going to happen. But there has to be the conflict. If the Spirit is alive in you, the deeds of the flesh are going to have a wrestling match going on in your, in your mind and in your heart. Uh, so, with our eyes wide open, let's compare the fruit of the Spirit and the working of the believer with the deeds of the flesh. In comparing, I like to put it this way. I, I like to put it, what's your ministry? And the reason I say that is because ministry is very active. So is your ministry the deeds of the flesh? It's not like, hey, I want to sign up on the comment card that I want to participate in the deeds of the flesh because that's ministry. I'm just saying for the sake of grabbing hold of this, consider, is this your ministry? Is your ministry the deeds of the flesh or is your ministry the fruit of the Spirit? Paul continues in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Let me say one more thing about every time I sin. Travis, is that sun killing you? Go for it. I, I can tell you this as well. In the same way every sin I commit, I could look at the deeds of the flesh I could also tell you every sin I commit is opposed to one of the fruit of the Spirit. I cannot think of a sin that I've ever committed, and I, and I have worked through this, that was not me lacking the fruit of the Spirit. John MacArthur uh, states in his commentary on Philippians 5, Contrasted with the deeds of the flesh is the fruit of the Spirit. Deeds of the flesh are done by a person's own efforts, whether he is saved or unsaved. Deeds of the flesh, we do it on our own efforts. The fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, is produced by God's own Spirit and only in, in the life of those who belong to him through faith in Jesus Christ. So here's the thing. If you are exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, uh, if it's really the fruit of the Spirit, it is being done by God. It's not you mustering up. Because there are some people that are very faithful. They may not be saved. But we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. It is a work of God in the believer. MacArthur continues, It is important to observe the fruit of the Spirit Described is not produced by the believer, but by the Holy Spirit working through a Christian who is in vital union with Christ. I would say MacArthur uses vital union with Christ a lot, and what we say here is preach the gospel to yourself, shepherd your heart. The word fruit is a singular indicating that these qualities constitute a unity. It's not plural. It's, it's one fruit, but there is a unity which should be found in every believer who lives under the control of the Spirit. In an ultimate sense, the fruit is simply the life of Christ lived in the Christian. I want to stop, though, and just kind of talk about the vital, vital union 
with Christ. How do we have a vital union with Christ? I, what we talk about here is being in the Word, shepherding your heart. Uh, for you and I to have a vital union with the Lord, it's prayer, it, it's pursuing Him in His Word, it's hanging out with believers, it is being involved in fellowship. Uh, and I, I want to say something, I, I don't want to speak poorly, but I, I've talked with numerous guys, and I, I've heard this many times, where I'll ask you, how is your time in the Word? Tell me what you're reading. Well, I'm really not reading the Word, but I listen to a lot of sermons. I download a lot of sermons, and yeah, I think I'm listening to three sermons a day now. And you know, I, I, I'm glad you, if you're, if you're one of those people that don't read the Word of God and you listen to sermons, I'm sorry to call you out on this. And if you are listening to a lot of sermons and you're reading the Word of God, great, keep, keep listening to sermons. Uh, but sermons aren't a replacement for you having your eyeballs in the Word of God. If, if you find yourself there, guys, I challenge you to pick up your Bible. Uh, there are a lot of great sermons out there, but it is not a replacement. God reveals himself in a very unique way in his word, and he tells us that. So if you're a sermon guy and that's all you do, I'm sorry I, I just ruined your little life, but guys, I am serious. We need to have our eyeballs in the word of God. Uh, let me continue on with MacArthur. Paul is describing nine areas of life and what the life should look like. MacArthur says it's important to remember that these are multiple characteristics but one fruit and they are therefore intrinsically related to one another and they are not produced nor can they be manifested in isolation of each other. Let me take a second to just explain that one fruit. If I am lacking self-control, it is impossible for me to be loving my wife. If I am not joyful, it is hard for me to be kind to somebody else. These fruit, they hinge on each other. We don't, we don't get to take, it's not a smorgasbord where we take, well, this one's easy, so I'll do this. They need to hinge on each other and they do not work in isolation. Before we dissect this passage, I, I want to remind you of one thing that Jesus taught. And you can go there, and it's John chapter 15. And I want to read verses 1 through 5. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit apart from me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is calling us to be shepherding our hearts. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to be busy. I'm going to use MacArthur's words here. We need to be busy to be growing our vital union with Christ. Men, if you've got another way that you figure out how to do it, let me know. But I'm going to tell you, it's by being in his word. By knowing what he says about himself. What he says about us. Each of the characteristics of the fruit that we exhibit often have one meaning to the Christians and a very different meaning to the secular world. So I want to look at, as we look at the fruit of the Spirit, I want to look at it, what is the biblical meaning of this? Because it is easy for us to come with our own world view of what these words mean. We may use some of these words in a very different way than what the Bible means. So we're going to spend 
quite a bit of time now just looking at this fruit. Uh, biblical love is an action. In 1 Corinthians 13, it tells us love's patient, it's kind, it does not envy, it's not boastful. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. God's example of love is found in Romans 5.8, and you don't need to go there because when I read it, you'll be so familiar with it. It says, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus' example of love is found in John 15.13. Greater love no one has than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And how we are to imitate love is found in 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. There's, There's four words in the Greek that all get translated love. And it's a sorge love, and that would be the brotherly love we have as Christians. Uh, the phileo love, which is brotherly love, that could be like I would have for for a family member that is not a believer. Eros is erotica love and agape love. The love that we are called to in Galatians chapter 5 is the agape love. Uh, let me give you a few facts about love, a few facts about agape love. When scripture speaks of God's love, it almost always is about what was accomplished on the cross. Agape love is what was accomplished on the cross. When scripture talks about a believer's love, it almost always is describing a dying to self for others or worship to God. So I, I want you to understand that this fruit of the Spirit we're talking about, love, in the same way, it's talking about God's love, what was accomplished on the cross, how we worship God, how we love others. And this really was fascinating, that there's only two times in the New Testament teaching where Paul taught on loving God. I think the reason why it's only two times that Paul taught on the response of the believers to be loving God is because it should just be a natural response. When we truly consider what Jesus Christ did on the cross, our response should just be one of dying to self, one to do what his word says. I I tell you again, in counseling situations, I have found people up to their eyeballs in sin, and they will say, but I love God. They may... They may have a sorge or a phileo love, but an agape love is, I will set aside my desires. You know, when you look at the circle, what, what is struggling, typically, when we fuck, are heading for disappointment or for discouragement, uh, we are putting ourselves in what we want first. It is, we are lacking that dying to self. Um, there's a wonderful book that I was shocked to see it on the book table a couple of weeks ago because I thought it was out of print, but it's a Banner of Truth book, and it's by Tim Leahy, and it's called The Cross He Bore, which is a just a small little book, and it is all about dying to self. Um, so when we love God, it's an act of worship. It, when we set aside what what is what we want to do for somebody else it's loving I just had the thought you know tonight as ASU wins the uh, Pac-12 South or no the whole Pac-12 I'm sure for some of you it would be more loving for you to be doing something else than sitting there watching the game it's a willingness to die to self boy I just make points with anybody with a wife uh, but, you know, guys, if, if you find yourself in sin, if you find yourself involved in sexual immorality, idolatry, if you find yourself in, in just with broken relationships on a horizontal level, you need to ask yourself, am I really loving?
because it is a dying to self. You know, the world, if you were to ask the average person on the street, you know, what does it mean to love? And they're going to tie it to an emotion or a feeling. But biblical love comes from God, and it is commanded as an action. It is not a feeling. It's not emotion. Uh, the second fruit is joy. Joy is a deep-down sense of well-being that abides in the heart of a person who knows all is well between him and his relationship with the Lord. It's interesting. The word joy is found in the New Testament 70 times. Almost always, like 99.9% of the time, almost always it signifies a feeling of happiness based on a spiritual reality. Joy is based on your relationship with the Lord. Biblical joy is not dependent on your circumstances. This is very different than the way the world views joy. Uh, Take a moment to think about people that you know that are, are not saved. They find their joy in the deeds of the flesh. It could be they find their joy in a, in a sinful relationship. They find their joy in idolatry. It's the stuff that they have or the things that they buy. And, uh, they find their joy in having a job. It's, uh, it's very different than you and I being joyful, as we should always be, because we're remembering our right relationship with the Lord. Again, joy... The deeds, joy to the Christian, deeds of the flesh, the believer, it's based on the redeemed state, and the world finds joy in in what's going on in their flesh. The Greek root for joy is very close to the root for grace. The two words, joy and grace, have a very close connection to each other. Hence, it's why it's about a redeemed state. For the Christian, there is contentment in knowing that all is well with them in the Lord. Joy is a gift to the believer. It's an inevitable, inevitable overflow of receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and knowing his continued presence in their life. Christian joy is lived out in the midst of trials and suffering marked by the celebration of expectation of God's ultimate victory over the powers of sin and darkness. Let me stop for a second. Are you looking for joy in something else? Are you looking in joy of just having a conflict-free day? You know, it, it's, I know for myself, uh, if I were to have an idol and be honest with you, it's to have a pain-free, comfortable life. But my joy is not there. My joy needs to be in my relationship with the Lord. Uh, hope, hopefully that makes sense. The third fruit is peace. Peace refers to tranquility of mind that comes from a saving relationship with Jesus. And and this is a wow. For the Christian, we have such a a different meaning of peace. I think if you were to take an exit poll at the mall and you ask people what peace was, I am sure you would hear there would be no more war. All our troops would come home. Uh, You would probably hear people talking about world peace. Uh, But that's not for the Christian. Peace has been the secular mantra for years, decades, longer than I've been alive. When you see the word peace in your Bible, check this out, guys. When you see the word peace in your Bible, almost always, 99.9% of the time, you will see that the context is very clear that peace comes from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace comes from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are looking for peace in a circumstance, you will not find it there. Uh, t- turn your Bible to John fourteen twenty seven. Uh, I just want to speak a little bit about peace. Because I think it is a word that we typically use in our society that we could just absolutely mess this up. Uh, John fourteen twenty seven. I sum this verse up and I call it Jesus' last will and testament. Shortly after John 14, 27, Jesus crucified. 
But here's what he tells us in John 14, 27. He says, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I, I want you to think of it this way. When your mom and dad pass away, or if they have passed away, and they had a will, and it said, on this day, you know, Joe gets the fine china, Jeff gets the $100. On that day of death, it became yours. In the same way, Jesus' last will and testament, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you. On the day of his death, that was our inheritance. We received Jesus Christ peace. There was another point I wanted to make, and that train will come back to the station sooner than later. Uh, Biblical peace, like joy, is not dependent on your circumstances. It, It is dependent on your relationship with the Lord. MacArthur states it is a verb. Peace has to do with binding together, as reflected in our modern expression, having it all together. It is everything in place where it ought to be. Peace is about our redeemed position with Jesus Christ. Let me compare having peace and in what the deeds of the flesh would look like and there not being peace. Uh, take a, a relationship that might be broken or a conflict that you're having with, with a friend or a spouse or somebody you love. At that moment, is it a lack of peace? Are you trusting God or are you feeling like you need to conquer this, this debate? To, to be at peace is recognizing God's in control of this. Uh, the fourth fruit is patience. Uh, patience is reflected by not being easily offended. It's the ability to put up with others, even when it's not easy to do so. I'd like you to keep in mind God showed his patience with us in his being so long-suffering against his rebellious creatures. Paul's point is clear. If God has been so long-suffering with us, should we not display his same grace in our relationship with each other. Uh, this is an area, guys, where I truly have to protect my heart. Uh, patience is, is is an area that I desire to continue to grow. And there's two things that routinely happen in my life that is it truly a barometer of how I'm growing. One is I hate to talk on the telephone. I loathe talking on the telephone. I find to get on the telephone, take care of business, and get off the phone. To chit-chat, I hate the telephone. Uh, But I'll tell you what, in my hating to talk on the telephone, in my anxiousness to get off the phone, I could be so unloving to people I'm talking to. These fruit hinge on each other and I have to guard myself in the area of patience Uh, another I'm looking around to see if I'm going to offend anybody another place where it's a line and the one that comes to mind is the post office I I think God truly allows me to stand in line just to grow me in patience and I'm an efficiency expert I can go to the post office and chop, chop, get, what's tough here? You know, sell them the stamps and get them out of my way. Guys, God, for me to be kind to the poor person on the other side of the counter, for me to show goodness, I need to be patient. These fruit hinge on each other. And guys, this is a call to evaluate yourselves. Uh, let me go to the fifth one, uh, the fruit of kindness. Kindness relates to a tender concern for others. It is benevolence in action, such as God demonstrated toward men. God's benevolence for us in saving us. Uh, I'm sure you guys have probably seen the, the bumper sticker, practice random acts of kindness. Well, it might make this world a better place to live, but that isn't really exactly biblical kindness. 
kindness like patience is a characteristic of God that is reproduced in us by the Holy Spirit we are to emulate God in our kindness uh, I'm giving you more factoids about uh, words, but let me tell you this. Kindness is a very interesting word. In almost every instance in the New Testament where you see the word kindness, the context is repentance. Almost every time. I'm, check me out, guys. When you're reading you see the word repentance or kindness, you will see within a few verses the context is about repentance. You know, remember Romans 2.4. Or do you, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? We get to be God's instruments here on earth of kindness. Kindness is what leads us to repentance. Uh, it blows me away that uh, word like Kindness can have such a, a different meaning to the world, yet it's what God uses to draw us to himself. It's, it is absolutely amazing that a holy God, creator of everything, would use a sinner like me or you to be his instrument of kindness. Are you a kind person? How do you show kindness to others? Remember, it, it hinges on others. You, you cannot be a kind person and not be a loving person. You cannot be a kind person if you're not a joyful person. Remembering where, why we love and why we have joy. For the sake of comparing and contrasting your ministry, as I say, the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, when you are sinned against, what flows out of you? Is it kindness? Or is it tit for tat? Is it Hatred, discord, dissensions. Uh, when we sin against a holy God, what, what flows from a holy God? His kindness when we repent. Makes sense? Everybody's still awake. Uh, the sixth fruit is goodness. Goodness is both as an uprightness of soul and an action reaching out to others to do good even when it's not deserved. Goodness is a characteristic that is produced in believers by the Holy Spirit. This goodness is not a natural quality or a personality trait. The word goodness is only found four times in the New Testament. And each time it is used by Paul. In a secular setting, you're going to hear somebody say something like they did something out of the goodness of their heart. Well, it comes close to the meaning that we're dealing with. But we're talking about something that's character as a characteristic that's produced by the Holy Spirit in a believer. Our goodness is a form of worship of God. It is not doing good deeds to earn our way to heaven. It's not doing good so it will go well with you. We do good to worship God. A biblical example of goodness is, is Joseph marrying is Mary in, in Matthew. You'll remember the story, Matthew 119. Uh, here he is engaged to Mary, has never been intimate with Mary, and she's pregnant. Now, I'm sure if it were us, we would say, I'm dumping her. But, but Joseph, in his goodness, wanted to save her reputation. Joseph thought, I will quietly divorce her later. But then the angel came and, and spoke to Joseph but it was Joseph's goodness that he wanted to do something to protect the other person. How about you? Yeah. What does goodness look like you? Are you prone to want to protect somebody else, somebody that you love? Or do you want to find yourself to be proven right? Uh, the seventh fruit is faithfulness. Faithfulness pertains to loyalty and trustworthiness. Our Savior and our God is faithful in manifesting faithfulness. We are emulating God. God's faithfulness is described, and you don't need to go there. You guys are going to be very familiar with these passages, but God's faithfulness is described in Lamentation 3, 22 and 23. Because of the Lord's great love, 
we are not consumed for his compassions never fail they are new every morning great is your faithfulness we we get to sing that Jesus' faithfulness is described in Philippians 2, 7 through 9. Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Jesus was faithful to the will of his Father. A picture of our faithfulness is 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So then men ought to regard us as servants, this is Paul speaking, of Christ and those entrusted with secret things from God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. You and I are called to be faithful. You, you and I are here on a mission from God, and we are need to be, our call is to be faithful to what he desires for us. Revelation 2.10 Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. There is great reward is what the word of God tells us for our faithfulness. We are called to be faithful. You know, I, I think it's interesting and I... I love reading the Old Testament. And when I get finished with the Old Testament, it's easy for me to say, because it's it's closed canon, man, all he wanted from those people was to be faithful. That's what the Lord wants from us. He calls us to be faithful. There aren't really a whole lot of moving parts in yours and mine worship of God. He's called us to be faithful. And this looks so different than in the secular world. Uh, our faithful should be demonstrated because of our love for God. You know, there, there are people that do things that are faithful, that are not believers. There are people that, you know, after 50 years of working somewhere, they were faithful and they never missed a day of work or they were never late for work. There, there is a faithfulness that... A, a non-believer can emulate. But I'll tell you what, for the believer, our faithfulness is an act of worship to God. D- don't confuse it. You know, I, it, is, it is something that God has demonstrated to us and he allows us to emulate. 